0: Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, we have a great show lined up for today, as usual. You know, we're going to start off talking about how to save big in your home. I mean, everybody wants to save money, but a lot of times... They overlook the obvious, and that is around your home. There's a lot of ways to save money. You can save thousands of dollars a year, and so we got the ways to do that, so stay tuned for that.
1: Yeah, and then we're going to follow up with a discussion on um, the market. Um, Looking back, Steve, uh, you know, 10 years, um, and, uh, you know, the markets have done relatively well. There's been some sectors that have done better than others, but uh, not many people uh, predicted the... uh, the increases um, that we've seen in the markets, and, um, and the, so really the 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 story is is you know the prognosticators out there they don't do a very good job. They don't know what's going to happen in the markets. They don't know what's what's going to happen next next week in them. So you gotta be very careful making decisions based on what you're seeing in the markets. We're just going to kind of go back in history a little bit and show how uh, a lot of people missed um, after the Great Recession what the markets have done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That'll be very insightful. And by the way, um, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart SmartVestor Pro with over 23 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice.
1: And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart SmartVestor Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years.
0: And we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon.
1: Yeah, check out our website, moneymd.net. We have the uh, podcast link. Uh, Links on there, we have a couple hundred that you can listen to if you're uh, interested in that, a lot of different topics, and we also have some tools on the website that you can check out, actually some retirement planning and some other really good, uh, you know, spreadsheets that we put out there that our our clients have, have given us good feedback on, and we have a Facebook page we post, and also a Twitter. Matthew's tweeting on a daily basis in August, so if you haven't seen some of those tweets, there's some really good ideas in there.
0: Absolutely. And you can reach us by email. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at or you can uh, link to us right off the website. We're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week.
1: Yeah, this is talking about long-term care. I, I got a, an, an article that I looked at, and there's kind there's like a 100 statistics on long-term care. But um, I pulled two of them out. One of them is uh, about half the people turning age 65 – will have some type of long-term care need during their lifetime. So got about a 50-50 chance. And if you do have to go into a nursing home, um, that stay is usually less than two years. So if you're buying a long-term care policy, you know, we usually recommend around a two-year policy. You can get a three-year. It's just going to be a lot more expensive. But if you look at the averages, that's probably what you ought to be buying on, unless you have some kind of family history.
0: Yeah, I was talking to a client this week who has a six-year long-term care policy, And they were wanting to go to a lifetime policy. And I was like, you know, most people do not spend more than six years in a nursing home. And, you know, the cost of that is is almost prohibitive to go that longer or longer. So, uh, yeah, two years usually usually gets it done. You know what I really like, though? I mean, long-term care is expensive. What I really like to see is people saving a lot of money in an HSA policy. That's right. HSA account, a health savings account. And then not even using that, just letting it build up, you know, maxing that out. You do that for 10 years, you're going to have some very significant cash that's there available tax-free for long-term care expenses, you know, if you you ever need it. So, um, you know, there are lots of ways to cover long-term care, but... HSA is a good one. You need to think about it. Yeah, and HSA is a great way to do that. Okay, and that leads us up here to our first topic, and that is how to save big in your home and this is kind of based on an article from uh, Forbes by Jan Anderson here recently. But John, you know, as as people are always looking for ways to save money, it's easy for to forget the biggest opportunity most people have to save on a daily basis is right around your own home. You know, about half of the average budget goes toward payments on your home and then all the expenses related to a home or around the home, you know, including food and Unfortunately, people never really take a close look at their utility bills or how to cut spending around the home because they they sort of get this attitude that you know there's not much you can do about it. Um, it's kind of like grocery shopping when people kind of get tunnel vision and they keep shopping at the same place and they neglect to realize that you can save about a third on groceries if you go from the highest priced grocery store down to Walmart to Aldi, as we've talked mm-hmm. about before. Right. Um, But, you know, there are countless ways to save a lot of money around the home. And while some of those may seem small, they add up and they can make a big difference over time. I mean, some of us will spend 50 cents driving an extra mile to go save two (laughs) cents a gallon on gas. When we could save that much every day just by having a programmable thermostat in our home. You know, by the way, you actually save about six to 10 percent. in fact, from using a programmable thermostat in your home uh, versus having one of the old ones that you have to manually adjust. So that's about 140 to $240 per year on a $200 a month power bill. So that's That's pretty good. It adds up. It adds up. You know, so as my dad used to say, son, don't step over a dollar to pick up a penny, (laughs) you know. So let's first focus on those dollars and let's take a look at some of the places you can save money right around your home.
1: Yeah, the first one is insulation. And I mean, you know, most of us have attics and if they're unfinished, take a look up there. I mean, you should see insulation between the beams. It should be at least six inches of it everywhere. You know, more like 10 inches, probably down in this area and certainly up in the northern part of the U.S. because it gets cold up there and obviously very warm down here. So, you know, if there's inadequate insulation uh, or the insulation appears to be damaged, you may want to consider installing new insulation. There's a great guide from the uh, Department of Energy on attic insulation. It includes specifics on how much you should um, have depending on where you live. And uh, many states actually offer financial incentives, up to a 75% refund, for instance, to encourage homeowners to better insulate their homes. So check it out.
0: Yeah, insulation's a big deal. You know, in these hot summer months, um, you definitely want to have at least R19 insulation in your ceiling. Um, you know, but but R24, or R38, it's even better. Uh, so you want to make sure your house is well insulated. So that's a key Second one here is air leakage. So it's kind of in the same vein, you know, look at the penetrations under your sinks and other places to make sure that there is not big cracks where air is leaking in, which is common, you know, where your pipes come through the walls and things and through the floor. Usually there are some pretty big cracks there. Now, older houses, they used to not spray foam in those penetrations. So, you know, you can buy a can of great stuff spray foam um, from like Lowe's or Home Depot, you can fix this problem for only a few dollars and it'll save you a ton on power uh, electricity over time. Um, And while you're at it, you know, check out your doors and windows, make sure they are not big gaps or air leaks around your doors and windows as most older houses do have. Um, If so, you know, buy some weather stripping and then go to work sealing every possible point of leakage. You know, tighten up your home from air leakage will save you a bundle over time. There's usually more heat lost through air leakage around the house than there is through the wall, you know, through the transfer heat through the walls themselves. So trying to cool a home that's not well sealed is kind of like trying to cool your tool shed. <laughs> you know, it's expensive. So the majority of your heating or cooling is lost through air leakage in the average home. So take a look at that.
1: Yeah, another one on the list is cut the cord. I mean, there are millions of Americans that are finally cutting the cord to the monthly cable cost and it, you know, it allows them to save $100 plus in some cases of unnecessary fees. A lot of people are switching to Netflix and Amazon Prime Video subscriptions. Um, you know, but there are also other ways to get cable channels without needing to pay that monthly fee. The, the local news, the weather, sitcoms, cooking shows, you know, there's a lot of different um, movie channels out there that you can get for free with a digital antenna. And in fact, most broadcast stations offer additional regional programming absolutely for free. So, you know, you can get a digital antenna that simply attaches to your current uh, HDTV and has up to... 30 miles range. So it's nothing like the rabbit ears that, you know, we used to have on our TVs many, many years ago. Um, If you find you're not watching, you know, as much TV as you used to, then this could be the perfect solution. And you can save a lot of money on a monthly basis.
0: Yeah. You can also just watch your shows over the internet. You know, that's what Kathy does at home. I mean, every night. So she never watches TV off the, uh, you know, direct TV that we have in our house. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, cutting... Cutting the cord on direct uh, on any uh, cable or even you know the the satellite TV uh, is a great way to save a lot of money, obviously, um, in your home. So that's something to consider. And then do your own home repairs. And you know I know some of it may seem unimaginable imaginable to do your own home repairs. But fixing some things around the home, you know, is not really rocket science. And you simply have to be willing to try. So there are some big savings here that you don't want to overlook. You know, and I'm not talking about adding on a room or doing remodeling the bathroom, although a very handy person could even do that and save tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, we're simply talking about things like simple plumbing, electrical, refinishing floors, You know, these are not difficult or risky, and the rewards are great. I mean, for instance, changing a light fixture yourself could save you a couple hundred dollars compared to calling an electrician, and will make it a lot more likely that you're going to, you know, change to that energy-efficient LED light in your kitchen instead of the old fluorescent bulbs that, you know, the fixture that keeps burning out the tubes and needs a new ballast, Um, and is energy-efficient, inefficient. So changing a plumbing fixture, for instance, would certainly save you hundreds as well. Um, It only takes, you know, disconnecting a couple supply lines and a drain line. Um, You know, yeah, sure, it may require you getting under the sink, but it's not as hard as it seems. You know, you can lay down pillows, you know. Be be comfortable. (laughs) You do. You want to lay down pillows, you got to commit to the job. But, you know, it's really not that difficult once you get under there. So, uh you know, if you really want to save some serious money though, I mean, then, then do your own painting. Um, just about anyone can do that. It does take some time and some patience. You know, the key is to use a small enough, you know, brush for the trim. So you avoid getting paint everywhere. Um, so you got to have some patience, you got to have the right tools, you know, redoing your floors or another job that will save you thousands of dollars. Again, you know, it's, it simply takes time and you know you don't have to you don't want to underestimate the power of watching several youtube videos to learn how to do just about any home repair but doing your own home repairs will save you a ton of money
1: yeah just a quick story when we built our house uh, gosh back in 2000 and Two, I did the I painted so we got a quote okay. for the painting. And I'm like Great. man, I can do this. So we rented a painting a paint machine. Okay. And I, you know, put garb on and I painted the entire house twice. Wow. And um okay. I think the estimate was probably I don't know, twelve thousand dollars to paint and wow. I did it for about two. And there you I, go. I, I mean, it was yeah. on a Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. So Well,
0: I remodeled three bathrooms, you know this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I had a quote for fifty thousand dollars and uh, you know, I did it for about five, yeah. so yeah. Uh,
1: you can save a lot of money. Pretty good, man. No That's doubt. That's great. Yeah. Another one here on the list is um, do your own um, lawn service. I mean, buy a spreader. You know, if I know you like the way that your lawn looks um, since you had that lawn service, but, you know, you can pay 50 to to $100 per month to make sure that your lawn looks good. And you can do this yourself. Uh, you know, you can. it's going to take a little bit of time, about 30 minutes per month. Um, you need a cheap broadcast spreader and a little know-how. So you're going to do some research. And start spreading your own chemicals to save a couple hundred dollars a year, maybe even more. Depends on what you have, you know, currently done. You know, you follow a simple schedule like uh, spreading pre-emergent every um, spring and fall, and you got to fertilize and in March, May, and July with a good weed and feed type fertilizer. So probably six or seven applications um, can save you a bundle, and your lawn's probably going to look pretty good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's not something hard to do. I, I certainly do that around my house and. Uh, you can get everything you need, and it really doesn't take very much time. <clears throat> Again, it's just getting the right chemicals and kind of having a schedule and knowing what what to do. Um, yeah, and then stop over insuring your home. Um, it's amazing how many people don't do the math on their homeowner's policy. And, you know, yet worse, I mean, they just, they, there's, um, you know, homeowner policy that you probably have never filed a claim on. Um, so taking your deductible up to, say, four to $5,000 will save you hundreds of dollars a year compared to a de- default deductible of, say, $1,000. Um, so make sure your deductible is up there um, since you should have an emergency fund to cover the small claims up to $5,000 anyway. And then make sure that the value stated for your home is not inflated as well. You know, insurance companies, they're only going to pay you the actual value of your home and your belongings Um, if something happens like you have a fire. So it doesn't help you to over-insure your home. And companies, they'll often, they'll raise the value by some inflation factor each year, even with a house, house prices haven't increased in your area. So take a look at the value in your policy. Make sure it's reasonable. You know, a 20% reduction will probably save you 20%, um, which would be hundreds of dollars every single year. Um, Another one here is, Drop the home warranty. You know, home warranties and other maintenance agreements, they rarely ever pay for themselves. So, drop any home warranty that you have on your house itself, you know, like a home maintenance warranty or heating and air service agreements that you have on your home. These will likely cost you bundles over time. They will not save you much in the event of repairs since they are riddled with exceptions and exclusions. So be careful of that.
1: Yeah, another one here is, is drop the home phone. I know you guys have, have done this one, and uh, we've been considering it for a while. We just haven't pulled the trigger on it. But, um, you know, it can be up to 50 bucks a month. Um, you know, ours is a little less than that. We Ours is about 30 and, uh, you know, I know you want to, that number uh, to put down beside your cell phone number when applying for for something uh, like a, telemark or a telemarketer or something like that. But it's not worth the $600 per year if you're paying that type of money. If necessary, you can add a throwaway cell phone to your plan for about 10 bucks a month and then drop my bell like an expensive dinosaur that <laughs> she actually is. So <laughs> yeah. you, you probably never answer your home phone uh, very much, and uh, it's costing you, you know, hundreds of dollars. Um so I've had that one on my list for a while. Again, we just haven't pulled the trigger on it.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And then they have all those add-ons to your phone bill, you know, all the taxes and fees and oh, stuff yeah, that yeah, yeah. make no sense whatsoever. So you can get rid of all of that. So there you go. And the last one here is do your own pest control. You know, I, I know you hate spiders and roaches and you don't want to deal with the nasty chemicals to, to keep them at bay. But you know, those chemicals are a lot cheaper and easier to use than they used to be. Um, You know, you can buy a two gallon sprayer and a quart of a chemical called Suspend SC, is what I use. You can get that right off the internet for maybe $30 for a quart of that um, concentrate. And, you know, you get, of course, you got to read all the safety precautions, you know, but the bottom line is it's safe to use indoors. Only takes a couple ounces every three months or so to cover your entire house um, in a couple gallon sprayer. And, you know, most like most indoor pesticides, it's odorless. It lasts for months around the baseboards and doors of your house. It'll keep the pest out um, year round. <clears throat> Only takes maybe 30 minutes, four times a, a year to spray. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an easy way to save hundreds of dollars if you're paying for, you know, a pest control service like most folks are. And that way you'll save several hundred dollars. And, uh, you know, you'll be in control of it if there's ever a flare up of those pesky critters anytime in between. Um, So if you apply these nine things that we just covered, you know, you can easily save thousands of dollars over the next year in your own home. Um, These are kind of the low hanging fruit, you know, in your quest for saving money um, and positioning yourself for retirement and the other goals in your financial future. So there you go. And that leads us up here to our question
1: of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with um, investing. And in, um, this person it says, I'm investing 100% in single growth stocks in the U.S. Is that risky? And I, I guess, you know, you look back at history a little bit, Steve, to answer that question. And, you know, technology back in the early 2000s was, you know, all the rave. I mean, the returns on an annual basis were 40, 50. I think it got 80% one year. And then it took 15 years to recover. And so when you're so narrowly focused like that, um, you're setting, it is much riskier to invest in one single asset class than being diversified. So you hear the Dave Ramsey's of the world, you know, talking about being diversified. There's a reason for that because one asset class can go for a decade or two and not make any money.
0: That's right. And I mean, what we would consider great diversification would be to have eight or 10 different asset classes, like small stocks, large stocks, international, US, value, growth, blend, um, even some bonds in there um, to, to help protect you when markets are down. So, you want to be spread out in a lot of different asset classes. You want to make sure the true asset classes, not just different names for funds, but they truly are invested in different types of stocks without a lot of overlap. So, uh, but that's a great question of the week. All right, and that leads us up here to our next topic, and that is, um, you know, the 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 market increase that everybody missed, right? I mean, this is just, you can't predict the market.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, this goes back into, you know, the great recession in 2008 and what people were were saying and so forth. And um, you know, the, the low of the market, Steve was March the 9th of 2009. And there weren't a lot of people out there saying, Hey, you know, it's time to buy. Right. Right. They were uh, a lot of negative articles. There was one gentleman out there. uh, His name was Jeremy, Jeremy Grantham, who stated in January of 2009, that he thought stocks were not were not dramatically cheap, but he thought they were worth buying, and he expected uh, you know a good return over the next seven years. And they did a little bit better than what he was predicting. But in hindsight, 2009 economists they had the right starting point. They believed that a single overwhelming economic trend would really drive the the next decade stock market results. Unfortunately, they were unable to identify that trend. Emphasizing instead two predictions that that didn't happen. So all these smart people with all this data, they went to school for it. You know, this is what they do for a living. They they weren't able to um, to identify the trends.
0: Yeah, that's right. I remember two thousand and nine. You know, in March when the market kind of bottomed out after the Great Recession, and people were just felt like the market was going to be depressed for decades mm-hmm. um, following that, and that the economy was going to be depressed for decades. And that's what people were predicting. You know, the economic consensus back then from 2009 was the arrival of the new normal. Um, For decades, the United States had goosed its economy through deficit spending aided by um, consumer borrowing. And that bill would come due is what they thought. You know, they said to pay it, the nation would be forced to tighten its belt, cut spending, and be strengthening its balance sheet. And those actions would depress GDP for years to come, and probably decades to come, thereby impairing stock prices. So, um, you know, they got some of that right. I mean, GDP was pretty weak, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't the kind of... Response that they thought it was very unpredictable, and that's what we see throughout history.
1: Yeah, and they—they they, like you said—they were were broadly accurate on that. Uh, belts were not tightened, um, so they missed that U.S. citizens nor the government um, <laughs> it had the habit of scrimping. Um, but GD, GDP expansion was was very light. Um, not once during the recovery did the real GDP, as measured by you know one calendar to the next, did it never reach three percent, and uh, that figure had been commonplace. You know, going back into the 80s and, and the 90s as well, it had always exceeded that mark. And what the forecasters overlooked that was that the GDP growth doesn't matter that much, which is interesting. They all knew that um, that to be so. But seven years before, there was a, um, a, 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 a book written about um, the—it's uh, called The Triumph of the Optimist. And it uh, to much acclaim, they, were, they basically said there's little correlation between a country's overall, overall economic growth and the performance— of uh, the stock market. And they also noted that, um, you know, they continued along the customary path. So GDP and the stock markets are not correlated, is what they said.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the reason that GDP growth trends tend to be immaterial is that although it does signal increased economic activity in a country, there's no telling who gains from the Is what they're saying. Um, you know, it could be, <clears throat> you know, the oligarchs that are Uh, who kind of scoop up the nation's uh, output in their offshore bank accounts, you know, and they benefit from it. Um, It it might be labor, which tend to devour those benefits in the form of wage increases. You know, it might be empire-building CEOs who plow their company's cash into unprofitable new adventures. Is kind of what they're where they're going with this, um, you know. But there are many ways to spend GDP growth besides increasing corporate profits, and corporate profits are the only one of those that really helps the stock market long term.
1: Yeah, and that's where they um, missed on this. They they said GDP is going to be low, so therefore the the stock market um, would would correlate with that, and. Um, in the case of the U.S., you know, most of the GDP growth went into boosting corporate profits and, and more. I mean, they, they uh, benefited from a historic advantage over labor, which kept the costs very low. And, and also they refrained from making large capital investments, which kept the margins high. And uh, U.S. companies, you know, have made money, you know, they've done very well. Um, you know, the S&P 500 real earnings had only exceeded $80 on two occasions back in 05 and 06, and since 2010, they've been above that mark every single year. So, um, you know, the the corporations have plowed that back into um, the profits, which ultimately drives the stock market.
0: That's right. Ultimately, stock prices are determined by two factors: um, there's corporate profits, and there's inflation. And the new normal greatly underestimated the benefit of corporate profits to to stock prices and you know, obviously the market recovered. I mean, the market was at at an incredibly low number back then. I think mm-hmm. the Dow was around 6,000 mm-hmm. back in, you know, in March of 2009. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it was a little inconceivable now thinking that the market would stay at that level for a long period of time, but that's what that's what people were estimating back then.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, another thing they, they really missed on is quantitative easing. Um, you know, fears about quantitative easing uh, were overestimated. Uh, the hazard, um, you know, exiting the 2008 financial crisis, global global governments wished to uh, stimulate the economies, but had difficulty doing so um, because their short-term rates were near zero. So then they turned to an unconventional approach. Uh, this is called quantitative easing, and that's basically where the central banks would purchase government bonds in the open market, and uh, that would have some advantages, supporting bond price prices, and also increasing the money supply and. You know, there are a lot of critics out there, um, you know, flooding the money supply to an even greater extent uh, than was already done with short-term rates. Um, People thought it would bring inflation. And uh, so financial markets would would tumble. The banks, you know, plunged into a fresh crisis. And so there was a lot of um, overhyping on the the quantitative easing. It actually helped significantly. Yeah, it it is a little shocking that we
0: didn't see inflation fall in that period because so many people were predicting it. And they were also predicting a collapse in the bond market as a result of this, um, you know, this quantitative easing and so much money being out there and all of that being poured into bonds and the great bull bull market in bonds prices, um, that obviously has not occurred. You know, bond prices, far from being in a temporary bubble, kind of remain firm. Um, you know, they have lost some money as interest rates have risen here more recently, but not to the level that, that people were predicting back then just from, just from the, the pullback in quantitative easing. And, you know, the dollar is stronger against the euro, um, British pound and the yen, uh, more so than it was back then uh, whenever all of this happened. But, you know, banks have suffered no, you know, fresh crisis. I mean, consumer confidence has been fine and business activity has steadily risen. So none of the quantitative easing warnings that they thought back then have come true, and it just shows how unpredictable all of this is. I mean, you, things that look so obvious mm-hmm. are not so obvious, and they don't turn out so obvious. And if you get, you know, one of one of four wrong, then you might as well not have guessed because again, you can't you can't bet against it.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, this article goes on to point out that a lot of it was uh, politically motivated, right? So. Yep. You know, as you're as you're out there today, um, you know, looking at headlines and people making predictions about the stock market or sectors or um, whatever they're predicting, they, they have no idea. There's there's too many factors that influence the market. And and I mean, there's thousands of them, and there's no way that a human or even a computer can predict all those thousands and the direction they're going to go. So I guess the takeaway here, Steve, is, uh, you know, there was a it was a scary time. Um, you know, I know a lot yep. of people went to cash during that period. Yeah. If you if you stayed in the markets, you your balance has increased. Generally sure. speaking, so absolutely markets go up, markets go down. You know, you need to stay invested. There are periods of time. Like we're going through right now, that are somewhat flat, and uh, that's part of the market. That's part of being in you know, investing is is you have to have a strategy and a plan, and you can get through these times.
0: That's right. I mean, the only sure thing in the market is that it's going to change, mm. and uh, you know, if you stay in the market over a few years, you're going to look back, and it's going to be very unpredictable what happened most likely, and it's going to change from where it is today markets don't follow this nice flat 8 or 10% return per year even though that might be the long-term average over 80 years there are very few periods where it's close to that that's right it's it varies greatly that's what stock markets do and but you have to be in it for the long term to be able to take advantage of those gr- good returns that they do historically provide um, over time so don't try to predict a market as really is the Moral of the story here, but um, it's a great look back at history. And that leads us up here to our final thing, and that is the prescription of the
1: week. Yeah, Steve, I met with a a young lady this last week and just graduating from college, significant amount of student loan debt, and uh, fortunately the income is fantastic. And um, so here's the prescription of the week. Per Dave Ramsey, you can wander into debt, but you can't wander out. You've got to be very intentional with getting out of debt. You've got to make it your, your number one priority, um, get your emergency fund a thousand dollars. And then you've got to go through something called a debt snowball, which is taking your smallest payments first, but you've got to be very intentional and sit down. And and so what we were coaching her this last week is when you get your paycheck right, you know, give, and then, you know, you're not saving right now. You need to be paying off the debt because it's going to take, take her a little while to get through the debt, but you got to be intentional.
0: Yeah. And like, you know, um, Like Dave Ramsey says, you got to be focused on it like a gazelle. I mean, you got to have intentional, concentrated focus on it, and that means you got to cut your budget to the bare bones. If you have serious debt that you're going to pay off, you need to try to live off half your half your take home pay, so you can apply the other half toward debt, and and then, like you said, you know, you do the debt snowball. You pay off this largest debt, the smallest debt first. You apply that payment to the next smallest debt, so it keeps building, so you're applying more and more to each debt. So you continue to make the same payment and focus toward debt, but it keeps concentrated down on, on a limited number of debts so that it's snowballing and gets paid off a lot faster than you ever imagined. So that's a great prescription of the week. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us out on our website, MoneyMD.net, and email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at MoneyMD.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one.